Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Everything Co-op, this wonderful, beautiful Thursday morning. You know, this morning we are going to talk about a number of different things with Mr. Greg Brodsky. Greg is the director of Startup Co-op. Good morning, Greg. Pleasure to be here, Vernon. Good. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. First, let's start off by telling me, I I know you, but let me ask you this. How did you know about co-ops? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, so many people know the word co-op, but don't necessarily really understand what they mean. And for me, it's funny, it's kind of a similar story, even though I I grew up with a, a family member who really taught me about them. So when I was growing up in Manchester, New Hampshire, my dad owned the local carpet store. And it was actually his father's before him, and, and that was always what my dad did. And when I was about um, seven years old, in 1984, my dad got together with 11 other guys who owned carpet stores in different parts of the U.S., and, uh, and they said, geez, you know, we're all dealing some common things, and what if we could get together and maybe buy from the suppliers to get together to get better pricing? What if we could share some time on training and on marketing and they didn't know that they were talking about a co-op at the time, but really, you know, that's what it became. And so my father's name is, is Howard Brodsky, and that's uh, being the co-founder of a group called Carpa One, um, that is now one of the largest purchasing co-ops in the country. So these days, you know, that group has, you know, 2,000 stores, and collectively those stores do you know, several billion dollars in volume. Um, and so I, I sort of got to watch my dad transition from managing, you know, our local carpet store to you know, running this startup and then eventually, you know, selling his store so he could manage the co-op full time. But to your question, I don't think I even really understood what a co-op was. And the way that I got into this work, when I was about 25 here in Boston, where I live, I was working for the local bike store. And it, uh, and I was telling my dad, you know, the owner's trying to figure out this and he this problem with marketing and this problem with pricing. And uh, my dad said, you know, geez, have they ever considered the co-op model, and uh, and I said no, but but tell me more about this this co-op thing that you do because you know I was part of a food co-op in college, but I, I think one of the problems of the word is it's very hard for people to understand. You know what does a food co-op have in common with a purchasing co-op have in common with a credit union? Um, but that that's really how I got into it. So I you know basically using the the model my father created for carpet stores, we use the same model to create a purchasing co-op for uh, retail bicycle stores. Um, so I, I did that for about 10 years. Hold, hold a minute, and, Greg. Uh, hold a minute before you go on. I just want to make sure yeah, I got sorry. this. Cause, so in your household, as a seven-year-old, mm-hmm. well, first your grandfather was had a carpet store and your father had that carpet store. And so when you were seven, your father got together with seven other carpet store owners and saying, look, 
I guess they were competing against big box stores and they're, and so they've got to get better quality carpet with a lower price. Mm-hmm. And so they said, maybe we can join together and buy together. And they didn't even know they were talking about a purchasing co-op. So, and they, eventually they found that out and they started this purchasing co-op. And now that's 2000 stores, billions of dollars. And your father has been on the show. So I do know a little bit about his history. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so at seven and growing up in his household, you still didn't know what a co-op is. So you're working in a co-op in in college as a food co-op. And then as you're in a bike store, your bicycle store owners having the same problems your dad and those seven carpet stores had some 20 years earlier or so forth. And your father then says, has he considered this? And now it starts again. That's kind of summarized what you just said. Yeah, that, that's right. You know, and and I think, you know, what's intriguing about the cloud model is it's a way for people to come together and solve common problems. And, um, you know, and so I think that's the amazing applicability of the model across different industries and the fact that, you know, these, these carpet store owners and similar problems to bike store owners and, you know, it can be used in so many different sectors, but, but you got it. And, and I think um, I'd heard what it was, you know, in college, I, I loved it, but, you know, it takes, we're all kind of have different understandings of what the model can bring. And it looks different across different industries sometimes. So let me, it's a great place for me to talk about my four types of co-ops, major types. And that's, it depends on who owns and controls the business. If it's owned and controlled by the employees, it's called a worker co-op. If it's an owned and controlled by the, and therefore in any, any business could be a worker co-op. It could be owned and controlled by the employees. If it's owned and controlled by the people that uses the products or services, it's called a consumer co-op. You have housing co-ops, food co-ops, sometimes they're, sometimes they're and worker co-op and sometimes they're consumer co-op or hybrid owned by both types. So you get those two major types. And then there's the two that farmers were using for ages. And that's one is called a purchasing co-op where different farmers would get together and they would buy their seed or their fertilizer or whatever they needed. They may even buy equipment like a big tractor and then share that tractor. And that's a purchasing co-op. And then on the other end, the farmers would take what they bought and they would create whatever they create, chickens or tomatoes, whatever they created, and then they would need it to take it to market. So you had marketing co-ops, and some people call those producer co-ops. So they end up selling their product to the marketing co-op, and they are owning it, and then the marketing co-op sometimes add value to it, like Ocean Spray or Cabot Creamery. They'll add this value to it and then get it to markets where the farmer could not get it to. So those are the four types, and I just heard about a, a fifth type, and that has to deal with technology, and you may help me with that one because I just heard about it last week. So mm-hmm. those are the four major types, and then your father helped start a purchasing co-op with carpet owner stores. Now, Ace Hardware is another example of that, uh, purchasing co-ops. Another example of consumer co-op is REI, recreational equipment. So your father helped to start a purchasing co-op for Carpet One folks, for carpet people, and then you helped your bicycle store owner start a bicycle co-op, a purchasing co-op with different bicycle stores. Okay? Yeah, that, that, that's right. Yeah, so we, we helped the bike stores. Uh, the program's still around. It's called the Bike Cooperative, and we helped them uh, negotiate on things that they buy, things from bike parts to credit card rates to marketing. And so, uh, yeah, I really learned a tremendous amount about the model and did that for 10 years. And then uh, I actually 
left and, and went and worked for a tech startup for a little while and learned to appreciate um, there are some really unique things about the tech industry in terms of what people call sort of lean startup methodology of how you start companies faster and apply sort of different testing techniques to really figure out what works and got pulled back into the co-op movement when there was a group of brewery owners that wanted to get together, uh, you know, the whole craft beer movement. They wanted a purchasing co-op for craft beer. And, uh, and to be honest, I don't, I don't even really drink a lot of beer. I was the wrong person for the project, but it, it turns out there's not a lot of places you can go to. If you say, Hey, we want to start a new purchasing co-op in our industry. There's no, there's no one organization for that. So uh, essentially I got pulled in as a consultant and what I realized was, you know, A, there should be more people helping entrepreneurs start these kinds of organizations and B, we need to make a, a better, uh, easier ecosystem for entrepreneurs to start new cooperatives. Wow. Okay. I got it. So when I was reading your resume, I kind of got that you like bikes and beer. And so I, <laughs> I started to call this program bikes and beer, but you don't even like bikes, but you, this whole process, I mean, you don't like beer and, and, and neither do I, but it, it's sort of like, how do you help people no matter what they like or dislike, but how you help them create a business that has a better chance of being successful and probably you talk about bringing it to scale, a better chance of growing that business. Yeah, that, that, that's right. And I've, I've learned to appreciate beer a lot more than I did, you know, but I think to your, your larger point, um, yeah, you know, I, I think a lot about why there aren't more cooperatives. And, and in fact, this is something my, my father and I talk about a lot. I'm on the board of a nonprofit here in New England that helps start new co-ops. My uh, father, Howard's on the board of National Co-op Business Association. And so we talk about this stuff the way some families talk about sports or politics. And, uh, you know, and there, there was actually a, a study that um, Co-ops for a Better World, uh, which we both support, did about, you know, do people really understand co-ops? And so, you know, it turns out 74% of people would rather buy from a cooperative their own business, but only 10% of people really understand what they mean. And so the question is, is if so many people would rather support these kinds of businesses, why don't we have more of them? And after thinking about it a lot, uh, we think there's three main reasons. So it's all right if I, if I share those. I oh, think. please, I'm waiting. Hurry, hurry. Okay. <laughs> okay, come on. Well, you know, I, I think it comes down to, you know, number one, misperception, right? The, the fact that people don't have heard the word, but most don't, can't really accurately define it. Um, and in some ways it makes it very difficult because those of us in the community say co-op and we imply all these, you know, amazing magical benefits that we know the business model includes, but the average person may not really get it. And I think we just need to slow down and, and be thoughtful about how we explain it and also share more real world stories like your your show does. Well, um, just just I'm gonna put a plug in for National Co-op Bank right here because when I took this idea to Chuck Snyder a little bit more than six years ago, he bought into it. He said he was mainly, later he told me he was mainly investing in me more so than the show, but it's, it's taken on because I got it in working with uh, housing co-ops that people just don't understand them. As I try to, I, I do property management in my day job. And, and so people don't understand. We said, well, we have a co-op here. You can, what is that? What does it look like? Smell like? Taste like? They just, just don't know. And so this trying to get people to understand it is the first big hurdle. So that's your number one, this misconception and getting people to understand what a co-op is. Okay. Right. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll add to that. 
you know, I think for some people it sounds, you know, it sounds socialist. It sounds like, uh, you know, something from the seventies that they were a part of in some housing situation, you know, and that may or may not be true. I mean, there's some very modern, you know, new economy co-ops that I think sometimes the word doesn't always do the business model justice. So sometimes depending on who we're talking to, we actually use the word shared ownership or distributed ownership model. Uh, it's just a way to bring more people into the movement. And we explained to them that this is, you know, this is a co-op, but we really want to make sure that um, the word itself is not an obstacle. First important we see in starting new co-ops is business know-how, that there's a lot of people uh, that we're seeing who actually want to start new cooperatively owned or shared ownership businesses where they want to share ownership of either the employees uh, or the users or the farmers, but they're, they're, there's not always a clear path of how to do it. And so there is, there's a great network, Cooperation Works, that uh, helps people start new cooperative owned businesses. But if you compare it to the traditional startup landscape, you know, we're lacking some of the ecosystem tools that, let's say, a tech startup entrepreneur would have. Um, you know, if you're trying to do a tech startup, there's a rich community of accelerator programs, online curriculum, books, uh, investment funds, pitch competitions. And so what we're specifically trying to do and in, in the accelerator we've created, Start.coop, is to uh, sort of make it a, a, a more balanced ecosystem. So how do we give co-op entrepreneurs access to the same kinds of startup resources that a tech entrepreneur would. And, uh, and we can certainly talk more about that. And then the last friction point that we see is around the financing. We, with uh, our inaugural accelerator cohort, we interviewed the entrepreneurs on the way into the program and the way out of the program. And uh, what they, they told us is their number one challenge is really just getting the financing to scale their business um, Great. Let and, me and cut you off here, man. We'll come back and we'll talk about financing. And I want you to recap the three things again when we come back. But we have to take our first break. If you could quickly, when we get back, recap these three things, and then we'll get into this financing part. We'll be right back. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, W-O-N-95.9 FM. Information is power, and this is what Mr. Greg has given us this morning. He's given us information. So, Greg, could you quickly summarize those three things that you found when talking about co-ops and then get into the financing? Yeah, you, you got it, Vernon. You know, I get so excited about this stuff. You know, sometimes it's hard to slow down. Uh, but the the three areas that that I I believe hold back uh, entrepreneurs from starting more cooperatively owned businesses are uh, number one misperception of what the word means and, and you know what the business model really looks like. Number two is just real world business know how. You know, how do you actually start the business? How do you give people a clear path? how to provide them with resources to execute on that business model. And number three, the financing. How do we help early stage entrepreneurs uh, get the cash to take their business to the next level of validation? Okay. Now I want to go back. You mentioned socialist. Mm. And I just want to go back and touch on that very quickly because I've had arguments and dis uh, the debates more more whether 
what is a socialist organization or this whole thing, uh, socialist Democrat that is, is talked about now in the politics. The socialism is a system of production where workers collectively own the business to do the production, the finished product, and share the profits. And to me, that's what a co-op is. The owners own everything. They collectively own it. They own the business. They own what the two that they need to produce the business, the finished products. And if there's a profit, they share in that profit, which is different from a business that's owned like others, capitalist model where the shareholders own the business. They hire labor. They pay labor and a wage. And there's this constant friction between labor and capitalist owners because the capitalists are trying to get the, the labor for as little as possible so they can make as much profit as possible. I don't think there's anything wrong with the model except that it doesn't help the laborers. And there's, again, there's this constant friction. So in the socialist organization, but socialism, by definition, co-ops are a socialist organization in a capitalistic sort of environment. But I think where people get messed up with this word socialism is because the socialists and from the political structure that has happened in the past, us in the capitalistic democratic model don't want that socialist model because it ends up with people ruling people uh, similar to, I don't know, the feudism system or slavery system or all of these other kinds of systems. So the, the socialist systems that have existed in the political world have been, we t I'm totally against that. But in a production ownership world, by definition, a co-op is a socialist organization. It's socialism. And I don't think we should have any problem with it. And I can understand us not using it because of the, of the, negative connotation of the word. So I'm, I'm all for not using that word and calling it a socialist organization, but by definition, we really are. That just want to get that out. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think it's this question of how, first of all, how we bring people into the movement and certainly, you know, calling anything socialism, I think is a very loaded term in the current political climate. Yep. But, you know, I would, I would say that the other confusing part, I, I, I think to me, when I bring this up to, you know, if we're trying to grow the movement, when I bring this up to people who don't already get what a, a cooperatively owned business is, is uh, first of all, I think it implies sort of a public nature to the ownership that most co-ops are not. I mean, m most co-ops are, you know, a group of private people getting together. And it's a better ownership model. And I think we can debate whether it's socialist or capitalist, but, you know, it's, it's private. It's private ownership. And I, I think the other piece of it that um, is important for people to understand is it doesn't mean that everyone's splitting the profit equally. And I think that's where a lot of people get hung up on it and say, well, you know, how is that going to work? You know, if I put more hours in or I work harder, shouldn't I get back a larger piece of the pie? And in reality, that's how almost every cooperative scale operates. And so that's why I personally don't use the word, but I, I completely understand where you're coming from on it. Yeah, I just go to the definition of it. And I, mm -hmm. I'm liking you bringing out this doesn't share the profit equally. But it's the same thing in a food co-op. You you get your dividends or your patronage based on how much you shop in the store or how much you work in the store. So it it, it is it's based on something, not just ownership. You have everybody has one share, equal membership, uh, one member, one share for voting purposes. But when you start looking at how you share the profit, it's based on some form of an input. How many hours you work, how much you shop, how much you buy. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. So, yeah, I like that. I haven't thought about it like that before. I like you bring that out. 
Yeah, I think that's where people get stopped, you know, I, and, and I and I hear what you're saying, you know, maybe it belongs a little bit in both camps, but, you know, it's, I, I think there's a lot of people who, you know, feel very strongly that we need to support models where the more you put in, the more you get back. And I think, uh, anyway, so if we're trying to grow the movement, I, I think that part of it needs to be part of the narrative. So I, it's interesting to me that you and your father talk, sit around and talk co-op. <laughs> okay. We do. Okay. I, um, uh, I tell people, I've said this on the air before, too, that I love talking co-op. I love talking about the benefits of and, and also how there, there are problems. And last week or week before last, I had somebody, there was a food co-op that failed in in North Carolina, Greensboro. And I had the people on that helped to start that. And it took eight years to get it up and going and talking about the, the, the problems that they face. So talking co-op, whether it's successful, and most are very successful, but then those that fail, why did they fail? And mm-hmm. in the six years, this is the only one that I've had on that, and I'm talking about that. But I tell most men like talking about two things, and that's sports and sex. Mm-hmm. And I said, I like talking co-ops and one of the other two. <laughs> you might can figure out which of the other two I like talking about. But so talking co-op is huge. So I think I would love to be at your dinner table with you and your dad. And so we could talk co-op. And these three reasons that they don't come on is really nice. Misperception the business know-how of how to get one started and then the financing is three real reasons why. And the gentleman that talked about why this co-op failed said there were three M's for food co-op. You have to have good management and getting the good management was difficult for them. He called it a movement. You had to have a movement mm. where you really get people to understand and then they want to shop in this co-op. They want to be a member of this co-op. And then the the third was marketing and marketing and movement to me are very, very close to each other. Uh, but he said this constant marketing of, of selling the products and promoting the products is what I think he was mainly talking about, but also the marketing of the movement. And then as we talked, I added a fourth one, and that is margins. They because of shrinkage, both uh, in essence, he said you really need management for a food co-op or a restaurant that really understands how you can have the right product in at the right time for people to buy or it will, you know, spoil and it would go to waste or people walk out the store with it. He said he had, he had, they had shrinkage in both ways. So it, this business know-how is really, really, really important. Okay. So you all talk co-op and you start off with bikes and beer. <laughs> okay. And now you you are in a organization that helped to start up co-ops. What is that about? What's that organization you're in? Yeah, so we, we've we been talking about this a lot, and, and we would love to have you over for dinner. I think it would be a lot of fun. We can talk about uh, – we, we can't even talk about the Patriots, so you'd have to deal with that. But, you know, which well, might not I don't talk sports. Fans. I'm not a fan, so that one was out. Well, let's get this more. Okay. So, you know, we, we I, I think really it was, um, might have been my father's idea. Neither can remember now who came up with first, but we said, you know, geez, what if there was an accelerator to help start new co-ops? And, and really that was the start of the conversation. And so we just started talking to other people about, you know, this question of, you know, why aren't there more co-ops? We identified the three reasons we mentioned. And, and actually I'll, I'll, I'll share that one of the key people we talked to came out of this um, platform co-op space you were mentioning earlier of sort of a tech-enabled co-op. Um, there's a gentleman named Nathan Schneider who 
has written extensively on uh, what people call platform co-op, which is essentially a a user-owned tech co-op. So I think it's most analogous to you know a, a consumer co-op. It just happens to be online. So if you think of a tech startup or tech platform that's owned by its users, that's really what we're talking about. Um, there can also be a role for ownership of the employees um, in some of these models. Anyway, so there, there's a lot of momentum and, and movement around these platform co-ops. And uh, Nathan and I were talking at the NCBA Impact Conference about two years ago now about you know how all these entrepreneurs have ideas, but they need just the business know-how of how to get the business going. I said, you know, would you be interested in the idea of an accelerator? And so we put together a planning team of Nathan, myself, uh, my father, and um, several other really smart people in the space. Uh, Felipe Whitaker, who I think has been on your show and runs a purchasing co-op for schools, churches, and synagogues in D.C. Uh, and we said, let's, let's just start trying to create the program. And so we've been trying to be a lean startup ourselves, which really means not setting it for years and years and years, coming up with sort of the minimum viable version of what this could look like and trying to test it. And so we launched about a year ago now. Uh, we opened it for applications summer of 2018. We weren't sure how many applications we would get, but we ended up getting uh, 82 applications from around the country um, and, and it sort of proved there was interest in this idea. Great. And we chose the best. Um, Greg, I'm sorry. We've got to go on our second break. So okay. we'll, we'll be coming right back. Greg Broski is talking to us about a startup uh, called Start.coop and had 82 applications that have been around about a year. 82 applications. That's huge. And so we, I want to talk to you about those applications and what you chose and how it's been going. But we'll take our second break. Please don't touch that dial. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative, and we have Greg Broski on the line with us this morning. He's helped to start a new company, uh, and it's called Start.coop, and they help co-ops to get started. So we talked about three reasons that co-ops don't get started. One is misperception. The other one is not, not having the business knowledge. And then there's the financing. Greg, just I remember this during the break is that I had it that one of the other reasons that there weren't more co-ops is the one percenters don't want people to know about them. And they go out of their way to make sure that people don't know it, because if more and more people knew about co-ops and created more and more co-ops, then that would chisel away the amount of profit that they get because they get what is it, 57 cents on every new dollar produced. And if we get more and more co-ops and people sharing in it, then they'll get less. Roberta McDonald from Cabot Creamery, and I love Roberta because she's feisty, and if you ever want to know what's on her mind, you just ask her, and she tell you, and she told me I was being real sinister with my view that people would not want folks to know about co-ops. So I like your three reasons better, okay? They fit better. Uh, people don't know about them, they don't know how to start them up, and they don't have the money to start them. That makes, that makes real good sense, and we can do something about that. So you started start start co-op, and you talked about the one person in, the, in D.C. I guess that's CPA Community Purchasing Alliance. Yeah, Felipe is on our Felipe. Board. Okay, that's the. I, I didn't project. hear his first name. Yeah, Felipe. I know well. I know when he got started. One of the other strong folks in co-ops is Mr. Paul Hazen, and he's. I, I think it was him and somebody else that had the idea about that one. 
And they end up hiring Felipe and Felipe's taking it to whole new kind of areas and so forth. So he's, he's great in it also. Okay. So all of you smart people got together and started start co-op and a year ago, what did you put out? And then you got 82 inquiries back, 82 applications. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, we were focused on this question of, of scale. And I think that's one of the, unique values we, we've had, you know, um, I think there are some resources for folks who want to start, let's say a new consumer food co-op or a new, you know, housing co-op. Um, I, I think through the cooperation works network, there's some existing excellent technical assistance, but if someone, you know, wants to start, let's say the next REI or the next Cabot cheese or the next CCA global, you know, how does one go about that? You know, we, we think there's sort of a different level of business planning, a different level of financing, technology operations that one needs. And so we, we frame the application that way is, you know, if you have an ambitious vision for the co-op you'd like to start, or if you're at the early stage of that, you know, we want to support you. And that's really what our conversations were about. And so we set up um, six main selection criteria. Uh, first one being social impact, uh, inclusive race, ethnicity, gender, and socioeconomic background. Um, we do um, strongly prioritize people of color uh, or, or co-ops that share wealth with people of color. And we actually want to really up our commitment to that for this next cohort. <clears throat> the other criteria were primarily around financial viability, scalability. Does the entrepreneur have the industry expertise? Can they execute? And, and finally, this mythical entrepreneurial spirit, which is not something we always talk about in the co-op world, but we think is important to have a founder that you know, really can pull off these kinds of models. So yeah, we were thrilled about the response we saw, and I'm, and I'm happy to talk about you know the teams or what the program actually looked like. So how many how many different variables did you say there were? Six main criteria. Six. I got social impact. I got financial, and then I got entrepreneur spirit. Yeah. So I think the ones, the additional ones were scalability, mm-hmm. um, industry expertise, and ability to execute. Okay. And these are also all on our website at start.coop. Okay, so you talk mostly about social impact in a different kind of area there. I was really pleased with the Federation of Worker Co-ops. Uh, I don't remember who that was. Uh, it wasn't Esteban, but somebody there said that like 40, it was either 40 or 60% of new worker co-ops were people of color. And that mm-hmm. was very interesting. Again, I believe folks that are that have been at the lower bottom of the scale financially, uh, one way of pulling stuff up, both socially and uh, economically, is through this model. Matter of fact, it's the only model I know. I never believed that we would get the 40 acres and a mule. I don't know if you know that story, but that was what was offered after slavery, after the Civil War, and it wasn't handed out that much. So I don't believe people will give you anything. So I think we have to figure out how to make money, how to how to uh, make our own products. And this is what this model allows to happen. So I like your social impact. Uh, what do you mean by scalability? I hear that a lot. What do you mean by it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the hardest one to define. And and what I would say is if someone said to us, look, you know, we want to create a worker-owned coffee shop, we would say that's amazing. You know, here's some resources. We might try to plug them into um, someone in the cooperation works network uh, who can help them but they wouldn't necessarily be our top applicant uh, just for purposes of our program, which is a really interesting choice. Um, we're, we're trying to, to help those who say, 
you know, maybe I want to create a worker-owned coffee shop and I want it to then spread it to seven other states, as an example. Or we're starting a, a platform co-op and we want it to scale nationally. Or we're starting a patient-owned uh, health data co-op, which is one of our teams, and we want to have thousands of patients in it. So scale can look a little different um, depending on the sector, but, you know, really we're looking for folks that want to scale, you know, regionally or nationally with, you know, the, the grandest version of their vision you know, even if obviously they're not there yet. So I think of scalability, particularly from what you just talked about, is how large can it get and how wide of area can it have? But it has to do with growth and size. One coffee store in a, in a corner somewhere downtown D.C. may be having eight to ten employees serving 500 customers a day. I just made those numbers up. You wouldn't be necessarily interested in, except that if you if they wanted to have 100 stores in the DMV and then they want to go out to Virginia, Maryland, New York, blah, 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 with, I don't know, 1,000, 2,000 stores and all of these employees and all of these customers, then that would be interesting. So I think of, I think of size when I think of scalability. Yeah. yeah, I think you're right. And it's one of the most interesting choices that we made. And again, you know, we're really trying to test all these theories and really see what works because a lot of people, you know, said to us, hey, you know, you can't do that, you know, for reasons at the top. There's these four models. You got consumer co-ops and worker co-ops and farmer co-ops, and you need to kind of keep them separate. Uh, the most of the time they are. And so what was interesting about our cohort, um, and I think I, I think I should probably explain more about the teams, but we heard from the entrepreneurs that focusing on scale, not sector. Hello? So having a little bit of technical problem here. So what he was talking about was they have one, two, three, four, five different platforms. One is called the Staffing Co-op, and I hope he'll reach back out to us. The other one is a driver's seat data co-op. Vernon, can you hear me? I'm yes, I can. So I was okay, just, I'm so sorry. I'm not sure what happened there. Okay. No, I was just describing these five different cohorts, the staffing co-op, the driver's seat data co-op, the savvy co-op, the expert collective, and Ira Mindy, a roots in return. So those mm-hmm. are your five cohorts and you end up getting 82 applications. So, how do they fit into these cohorts and what are these cohorts about? Yeah, let, let's talk about the, the five graduating teams. Um, they're all really different. So driver's seat is, is one where they're looking to bring together Uber and Lyft drivers from around the country and to give them a platform to earn more money. So these gig drivers are driving around. I think we've all heard stories about how these guys are working you know, 12, 14 hours days and still can't pay their bills, you know, aren't getting health care. So their their app that they're currently testing in the city of San Francisco helps drivers aggregate data so they can make better driving decisions and then also take the the total data from all these drivers and they can um, there's a desire by local governments to actually get trend reports of what the driving habits look like. So the driver's seat team's team believes that they can sell that data to municipalities share the profits with the drivers and actually help them make more money. Hmm. Um, and they're really interesting because it's a tech platform. It's about the gig economy. So they've gotten a lot of buzz. We have another team called the staffing co-op. Uh, that's really exciting. They are uh, in Baltimore um, and they're trying to flip the extractive temp labor industry on its head. So they are a temp staffing firm, primarily people of color, but not just people of color who want to share the profits at the end of the year. So if someone works for a staffing agency, 
you know, their time gets marked up, let's say 40%, but they never see the, the profits on their time, right? Absolutely. They get that low hourly, hourly yeah. rate. And so, so the, the folks who join this the staffing co-op actually share in the profits in the year and also have a voice in decision-making. And they've done a great job. So they're uh, just now, you know, getting a lot of new contracts in. We have a uh, savvy co-op, which is probably our highest profile team in the program. Um, they've been profiled in Entrepreneur Magazine, uh, and they were actually named one of the 50 most daring uh, entrepreneurs of 2018 on the same list with Elon Musk. So they're another example of a tech-enabled co-op. And what Savvy is, is a data platform for patients to own healthcare data and to make more money from it. So if you've ever seen an ad in um, you know, the subway or in a bus terminal for you know, do you have this condition, you know, participate in this study and earn $250. Well, it, it turns out a lot of those ads are run by third-party marketing companies and that the patients are not, you know, certainly not getting all the money that, you know, obviously the, the pharma company is making or the marketing company is making um, on their work. And so Tavi's mission is to bring more money and more voice and control to the way those studies are run and also to make sure that the studies are run in a way that actually brings patient voice more to the outcomes that pharma and healthcare is doing on a daily basis. Wow. Uh, yeah. That's so, exciting. I mean, yeah. That's yeah. Very exciting. They're all really exciting in their, in their own way. And, uh, and then in five totally different industries. What, what is the expert collective? Yeah. So that's our only team out of Boston where I am. So the founder there, Enrique Shada, he works at MIT in his day job and helps collect, uh, connect academics to, private sector companies looking for consulting. And he's seen a real need that academics are looking for more uh, consulting time, that industry wants easier ways to connect with academics. So Expert Collective is a academic expert-owned consulting platform. So imagine, you know, if you're a, a company looking for expertise, let's say in biotech or in data science or in cryptocurrency, you can log on this platform be connected with the right uh, professor or academic, get access to their consulting on an hourly rate or per project basis, and that the experts themselves actually own the platform. So again, you know, decisions are made by them and the profits will be shared by them. Well, before we take our next break, tell me about the RS Mindy Roots and Return. Yeah, if you live in the Bay Area, you might know RS Mindy. Um, they are have a, a 30-year history of creating worker-owned bakeries that people love in the Bay Area. Um, and I think they have eight or nine locations now. And so they're actually creating a new co-op because they realized that affordable housing in the Bay Area was so challenging for their workers that they are creating a worker-owned housing construction co-op. And I, I can talk a little more, more about it. Uh, do we have to go to break? or? Yep, we'll go to break and come back and talk more about that then. Okay, we'll be right back. is power, and that's why WOL is a great partner here. Uh, what we've learned, though, is isn't information. Information is stored power. To get into action is where you get the real power. 
So we hope you'll take the information that Greg has given you today and that you would get into action. So we're going to talk about the action that 82 applicants put forth in their first round. Tell us about that, uh, Greg. You had 82 different people apply for help, for assistance. Yeah, it was really exciting to see people's dreams and business plans of how they'd like to bring more cop entrepreneurship into the world and so many amazing visions. I, I think these five teams, you know, represent just a handful of what's out there. And and if anything, you know, I think we wish we could support more people. There were there were teams, you know, we really wanted to start small because we were a pilot program ourselves. We we're trying to get the model right, bring in more mentors, more funders. But, you know, there were teams that we weren't able to support that are, are incredibly exciting um, in industries like music and housing and the arts. So, I, you know, again, it's the, the co-op model is so exciting. And I was just going to walk you through the other um, two co-ops in the initial cohort. Okay, wait a minute. Um, I got to get something straight because I think I had it sure. confused here a minute. I thought you had five cohorts and you took these 82 and you decide which one of those which one of these cohorts each of those applications would fit in. But no, this is your initial cohort from a standpoint of if you looked at the 82, then these are the five that you ended up working with. Is that more? Yeah, right? that, yes, that, that's right. So I'm sorry. Yeah, okay. we had 82 applications and we ended up with five teams in the initial uh, graduating class. All right. So let's talk about, as you were saying, you want to talk. I wanted to hear more about our, our it's men day. And you said there might be two others. Yeah, well, so ours many is is so fascinating because they have this this really rich history in the Bay. I mean, if, if you talk to people in the worker co-op space, you know they're really one of the the best models in the U.S. You know, people talk about obviously Mondragon in Spain and in the Bay. It's, it's really about ours many, um, and and they have a scalable model. One of the unique things they do is for every bakery that they spin up that's worker owned, a percentage of the of the overhead that's taken in goes back to this larger ours many associations so they can start new co-ops. And they were really one of the inspirations for us in the way we modeled our, our program. And we were actually surprised, surprised when we got their application because we said, you know, geez, you know, what are we going to teach ours many? They've been doing this for 30 years. <laughs> what can um, they teach us? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but th- they wanted to use the accelerator as a way to test out a new model that they wanted to develop. And we thought that was a really exciting usage of it. And we hope more companies do this. So their their challenge right now is, you know, they have these very successful bakeries, but their workers can't afford to live in the Bay Area anymore. So strategically, they've made the decision that they want to focus on, on housing. So they've started a construction co-op owned by the workers um, using a similar worker-owned model. And then Roots and Returns is a brand new model they're piloting uh, this winter. And what they are planning to do is to help take a uh, homeowners who maybe have extra space in their backyards and essentially help them rent their backyard and develop uh, what people call an accessory dwelling unit. It's kind of a small, you think of like uh, these tiny houses, uh, think of a modern version of a tiny house that people can put in their backyard or their front yard, maybe about 1,500 to 2,500 square feet and, uh, and essentially uh, have low cost housing for, for additional people. And so there's a lot of buzz about this on the West Coast. We don't talk about it as much on the East Coast, but Portland and Seattle and the Bay are all talking about this model. Well, I, heard, um, I have a friend in L.A. that just told me about it because she has room in her backyard and she was saying they just passed some law, laws in 
Los Angeles where she can build a smaller home in her backyard and therefore rent it out is what she was looking at doing. Exactly right. Okay. Exactly right. So this is a worker-owned version of that model. And so they're going to do their first pilot. Uh, I was just talking to Tim Hewitt at Ars Mendy yesterday, who's a, you know, if he hasn't been on the show, he'd be a great guest. But uh, they're going to build their first house in the next three months. And they've had a ton of uh, interest of who's going to live in that house. And actually, as, as a result of being on our program, they got some press on their local TV. And so anyway, so we've been really excited to support them. Wonderful. Just great. All right. So you had 82. You chose five. What yep. happens to the other 77? Yeah. So right now we're not able to support them. So we uh, are scaling up right now. We're looking for funders for our next round. We'd love to expand the program. Eventually, what we'd really love to be able to do is to be able to offer some free online curriculum so that we can help everyone. But, you know, as a startup ourselves, we're just trying to stay focused get it right, and then slowly expand. So how much money are you looking to raise? And how, how would somebody reach you if they want to invest in start.coop or invest or grant money to you? How would, you, how would they find you? Yeah, we're, we're flexible. We're really looking for folks that see that this can be a way to uh, scale new shared ownership entrepreneurship. And so, you know, I'm Greg at start.coop and the website is start.coop. And we're really now having those conversations with funders about how do we bring the program to more people. Um, we've been really excited about the feedback so far. So the webpage is start.coop. And if they wanted to reach you, Greg Broski, you go greg at start.coop. And that's they send it. an email to you. And that's if you Got want it. to find out more information about start.coop, the five different co-ops that they have to get started. If you want to look at giving money, like donate money to it, that would be great. Or invest money and look at the different ways that they could invest. That sort of like what you're looking for, what can be helpful. That'd be, that'd be incredible. That's right. Yeah, we'd be happy to talk more about our model and, and why we're getting some impressed, not just from you, but we got an article in Forbes and the Boston Globe. And I think people see that we're taking a slightly different approach to co-op development. So we've gotten a lot of buzz. Well, being on Everything Co-op is more important than Forbes and Wall Street Journal and New York Times. I mean, this is, yeah, I got it. <laughs> Vern, Vern, I couldn't agree more. This is the one I was waiting for. Okay. But, all right. Yeah, we're going, to, we're going to get there. It's Like I said, it's been six years. One person asked me, we have an advisory committee, and a person on the advisory committee said, Vernon, what do you have hope for this program? And I said, what do you mean? She said, uh, well, would you want to go... Like every other week as opposed to every week? I said, oh, hell no. I want to go every day. <laughs> There's Love enough it. information out here, particularly if you talk about I have about 82 applications and I can only work with five. 77 folks you could not work with. Uh, 14 or so times what you were able to work with. Those five, were they sound great. They sound phenomenal and around and all around the U.S. So that is great to work that you're able to do, but there's so much more out there that can be done. And if you look at all of the different co-ops and all of the different kinds of things that's happening in this space, that's just so much more information we could talk about. And I think we could get five people a week on this program. It'll take more money, more effort, more work. But yeah, I like that. Okay. So what do you see for the future, sir? Yeah, well, really, we want to now take it to the next level. So we've spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, what worked in the first program, what we could do better, how we can bring more support to these entrepreneurs. And 
we want to tap into the press we've been able to generate and raise the bar even more. So in the next class, you know, we want to, we want to see if we can get 200 or 300 applications and actually use a bigger round of investment to try to motivate entrepreneurs. So we know that some people understand the co-op model, some people don't, but we want to see if we can raise, you know, at least $100,000, maybe $200,000 so that we can bring in new entrepreneurs, new people of color, more women entrepreneurs into the program and just grow the community. And, and there might be amazing entrepreneurs out there who care about wealth inequality and just didn't even know this was a potential model. We want to see if we can pull them in and get them to apply for this next round. So, Greg, I will send you an email to see at greg at start.coop to talk to you about my investing in what you're doing. Love what it. kind of investments those might look like and what's the possibility of what kind of returns and how, how much good can we do and how much money can I make? It's wonderful. We, we love it, Brian. Thank you so much for your support. And if you're talking about a hundred to $200,000, that's just not a lot of money. So it's like, can you do all of this good that you're talking about? Get 200 to 300 applications, maybe have 20 different people in your second cohorts. If you doubled it, it would be 10. So I just took it to more than that. If you had 20 different companies that you could work with, I mean, could you handle that? Could you stand it? Could it work? It's just phenomenal. I like what you're doing, sir. Like a lot what you're doing. Last you message. So Anything you want to tell the world out here? No, we're, we're, you know, we're just excited. I mean, I think for, for all the reasons that you have amazing guests in the show, you know, the, the cooperative model is a way to share wealth, share, share power. And, you know, really our goal is just to make it easier for entrepreneurs to use those, those models. So I just want to thank you for the opportunity to, to talk about it. So you want people to understand how you can share wealth. It, it, for me, it's how you build wealth, how you can get more mm-hmm. and more people. When you got one percenters have more wealth than the bottom 50 percent. So in the, in, and it's a worldwide problem. It's just not a U.S. problem. So how do you, that's why I like what you're doing and I like co-op. So, uh, buddy, I just tell you, I, I would hope that everybody would look you up at start.coop and email you at greg at start.coop to the point where you cannot even, you get so much that you cannot even answer my without getting some more help. Love it, Greg. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks so much, Ernest. Everybody out there, please have a wonderful, wonderful week. And this week, please work and live cooperatively. Thank you. 